kids can go to uh, Children's with Renee and Ronnie. If you're over 66 years old, head back there. It's going to be better than what I'm doing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Zach, for reading the word this morning. We are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It's good to be back here. I don't think I've been down on the East Campus for, man, a long time, like a, over a year as I was doing North Campus pastoring. But as most of you know, Iona and I just used to live a couple blocks over that way. Now we've moved all the way up to North, North Liberty. And so coming back this morning was kind of like doing what we did all last year, except in reverse. And so we found ourselves uh, driving down 218 and coming back into the old neighborhood and loved it. We really miss this uh, part of town. So it's great to be back with you here this morning. Let's have a word of prayer as we uh, open God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your gentleness, for your kindness. I pray, Father, that as we just see what Peter has to say to us this morning about the mission of being a disciple that it will be clear to us what you want us to understand and to know. Thank you, Father, for just the strength to be a congregation in these really crazy times, to have the ability, the resources, the desire to reach our neighborhoods, the people who live in Iowa City, our next-door neighbors, the people we work with, people we go to school with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we, Father, be strengthened in that resolve for our time having been spent together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So for the past two weeks, we have been talking about what it means to be a whole disciple. A whole disciple is defined as one who loves the word of God. As it says in Psalm 1, his desire is to be in the law of the Lord day and night. And the whole disciple, as we talked about last week, is one who's a prayer warrior. From 1 Peter 4, 7, devoted to prayer. But this morning we're finishing the series by looking at what it means to be a whole disciple in mission. Mission can be a difficult thing for us in this generation of Christians. There's a book out that I've been reading recently uh, by Todd Bolsinger called Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership and Uncharted Territory. He states that Western Christianity is feeling that the mission of the Christians is changing. Maybe more accurately stated, it would be has changed. Unfortunately for many of us, the mission of the church is often identified with the culture of the generation that we live in. He says, and I'm quoting here, if Western societies have become post-Christian mission fields, how can traditional churches become then missionary churches? In other words, too many of us in today's churches are focused on a mission that is irrelevant or at minimum off-center of where the people that we're trying to reach live with the message of Jesus Christ. Why is this true? How did this happen? Well, Bolsinger goes on to state that the changes we've seen in our culture are largely attributable to the fact that we've been, what has been true for the past 1,700 years of Christianity simply is not true anymore, at least not in the West. 
the way that we look at this cultural thing that we used to have and this fact that Jesus and what he was about so dominated the culture of people for all these years since the time of the resurrection, we can summarize by calling it Christendom. The Judeo-Christian ethic, Judeo uh, laws and so forth have dominated our society. And yet we're facing a time what we would have called post-Christian even 10 years ago. And today we see many other competing ideas, beliefs, religions, and so forth that want to take the place of that Christendom. But just to give us a point of reference, what did that Christendom give us? Well, <coughs> if you're over 50 today, as I walk through these, you'll recognize them. So hang in there and then remember to explain them to those who are younger after we're done this morning. But this Christendom culture, what? They gave us blue laws, meaning nothing used to be open on Sundays. In America, I can remember growing up and thinking, man, Sundays were so boring. I wasn't going to church yet. I hadn't found Christ as my savior. All I knew was that there were no stores open. People frowned on doing too many activities on a Sunday. We had blue laws. Uh, even the city governments respected the Sabbath. Christendom also gave us as a culture the Ten Commandments in school. Uh, we can remember seeing those commandments hung in parks, in public buildings, but especially in schools. Teachers used to discipline their students based upon those Ten Commandments. This Christendom gave us the under God in our pledge of allegiance, one nation under God. Christendom gave us instructions on reading the Bible, such as in the 1920s through the 1970s, the Los Angeles Times regularly would reprint a Bible reading plan coming directly from the Hollywood Presbyterian Church with its 9,000 members. Can you imagine the LA Times printing anything like that today? This Christendom had town fathers in small towns across America laying out the town square with city hall and the post office and then the first church of, well, fill in the blank, as the foundation of their municipality. We see this in Iowa especially. There's always that square in the middle of every little town that you go through. The church used to have that prominent place in society. Now most of those buildings have either been torn down or moved outside of town, but you very rarely see any association of government and church. This Christendom gave us the false security that our laws, our ethics, our goals were byproducts of that Judeo-Christian ethic. That even when institutions like parents, like churches, Boy Scouts, failed to their stated commission, our society would count on the rescue of our laws to fill in the moral gaps. And finally, this Christendom provided us with the belief that people that we share our message of saving grace with at least had a smattering of biblical knowledge and respect for the message and person of Christ. None of those things seem to be true anymore. And the mission of the church has been slow to change in light of that. Well, how have they changed? What are some of the things that we've observed? Well, now Sundays, they're more about soccer, shopping, TV binge watching. Very few people identify going to church. Also, university campuses are deorganizing Christian ministries and establishing protocols that by definition eliminate any chance of a true Christian message being allowable on a campus. 
when a whole generation of young people list none as their church preference or done as their church preference, many old people look enviously at such a designation. Even though they're involved in a church because they have been their whole life, many of us wish that we could wash our hands of this whole drama that is the church and do something else with our Sundays. It's estimated that over 1,500 pastors quit the ministry each month. Common reason in that reflection by those pastors is that seminary didn't prepare me for this. What's the this? For this change. What they were trained to do, what used to work in order causing the church to grow and to reach their neighborhoods, doesn't work anymore. And frankly, they're lost. They're not prepared. They're tired. Lastly, churches are closing so rapidly that certain sections of the United States are almost church-free. No one seems to be lamenting this loss. In 2019 alone, for example, 4,500 churches closed while only 3,000 started. And the numbers get grimmer as you get closer to 2022. We're in change. We can't rely, depend, we can't take for granted that our message of Christ is going to be received well or even understood by our neighbors. So what does this mean? What questions do we need to be asking to be whole disciples? A church that really can reach its neighborhood. What is our mission? Well, let's ask this question. How do we stay faithful to our mission as a church in a world that has changed so radically? How do we stay faithful to our mission as a church in the midst of a global pandemic, even when the most faithful churchgoer is afraid to leave their homes? How does the Great Commission of Matthew 28 get accomplished? Great questions. We have to adopt adaptive theologies and methods for reaching our society. There's something I want us to think about this morning, a mantra for mission today that we should keep on the tips of our tongues, especially if you tend to be closer to the older generation than you are the younger. And that is this. The world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. Let me say that again. The world behind you, excuse me, the world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. What I mean by that is just as I said, the mission has got to change. How we understand that mission has got to change. Our role within that mission has got to change. If we're going to be effective in reaching a world that no longer understands the basics of Christianity, no longer seems to see any reason for having a exterior transcendent belief in a divine being in their lives, we have to meet that challenge head on. Too often, as I talk to people in my age category, I hear people saying, boy, I would just wish we could go back to the way things were. We find ourselves watching the Andy Griffith reruns, Leave it to Beaver, anything that would just bring back those days. Oh, that would be so wonderful. You know, we listen to talk radio and TV shows that seem to promote that kind of conservative viewpoint. We're frightened of society. It's easier to stay indoors 
ignore our neighbors than to get out there and mix it with people that we just don't get and they don't get us. It's all too common that we lament the loss of that Christendom and yet there are many of us who can remember that that old Christendom had many things wrong with it. It wasn't necessarily of Christ, was it? I mean, if you were the right color, if you were the right gender, if you were the right socioeconomic level, yeah, life could be good. But we kind of looked the other way when things weren't good for certain members of our society. So there are some positive things that are happening today. There are some things that we really should have addressed many, many years ago. But still, down in our hearts, we resist these changes that seem to be flooding the culture that with the hope that things would just go back to the way we used to know them. We'd even take back blue laws. We'd even resist the urge to shop on Wednesday if we could just get back to those days. Which, just like the book says, is not unlike canoeing a canoe, paddling a canoe down a river, and all of a sudden you remember a bend that you just went around. It was so beautiful. The water was so calm. You seemed to have control at that point in your journey. And you think, well, all I have to do is get back to that point. Then I'll have control. Then I'll understand where this crazy river is taking me. And you think, well, all I can do is backpedal. If I can just backpedal with that oar and just put strength into it, and I'm gonna resist anything and everything that gets in the way of me being where I used to be, I'll tell everyone else what it's like at that bend in the river. They'll have to learn to trust me I know they weren't there, but I can tell them it's a lot better than where we're going. And no one seems to listen. And all of your efforts at backpedaling just don't accomplish your goals. Life just doesn't work that way. Further, it denies the inescapable theological promise of Christ in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 when he says, Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. We're not in this by ourselves. The church is not facing a challenge that they haven't faced before. Jesus is gonna be with us at every step of the way. There is a path forward. There is a way to let go of the past and bring forth the majesty and relevancy of the Church of Christ and the intense spirituality you experienced as a child into a world that doesn't even begin to understand those terms. You just have to find a way to do it. We just have to find a way to do it. And it's not by going backwards. It's by embracing what's coming in front of us. The world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. Are you ready? Are you ready as a church, as East Campus, to tackle the unique challenges of this day? More than ever, people need to hear that gospel. More than ever, people need to experience the love of Christ through his people. This is not a time to hibernate or to go back into our places and just sit there, almost like we're doing a spiritual retirement. This is not a time to oppose those methods and means that younger people in the church seem to embrace. I was talking this over with Ione yesterday and I said, I can remember becoming a believer uh, back in my days in high school and getting experienced, immersed into the Christian way of thinking. 
at least the Christianity that I was taught. And one of the things that was totally taboo was drinking alcohol. And I remember thinking, okay, now my whole family drank. You know, we were all non-Christians. We came into the church. And I remember my mom specifically asking our pastor, is it okay to drink? And the pastor said in a very loving and gentle way, no, we don't do that. And so all the way through the latter years of high school when I had friends saying, come to this party and come out and drink and do this with us, I would just very much say, no, no thanks. And then fast forward 20, 30 years later, I come to Parkview and a bunch of us go to the Cubs game in Chicago. Uh, Jeff Gilmore led the staff team on that trip. And we're sitting there and I notice that I'm in a row of staff pastors and they all have their hot dogs or their Polish sausages or whatever they're eating and their beers. And I was shocked. I was like, what, what has happened? We're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. It was scary. And yet you, we laugh at that, but there are things like that that are happening all the time. Now we're doing outreach, Andrea and Aubrey are, for women in the church at the, the breweries. And we think, well, how does that match with my Christianity? Hey, if you're finding some of the things that are happening in methodology in the church today, if they don't quite fit with the way that you were raised, the way that you understood that was important to Christ, stand back, take a look. And boy, if the spirit grips you, close your eyes and jump in, to embrace it. This generation knows how to reach their generation. And the last thing that we want to do is proclaim this is the mission of the church, something that gets in the way of that effort. The world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. Sometimes I hear Christians, both young and old, wanting to compare the church today to the church of the first century. Same challenges. What we need to do is just capture what the first century church did. They had a rough time of it. They were taking the gospel to totally unsaved people. We have to do the same thing. But really that comparison only goes so far. The big difference is it can't be reduplicated because the first century church, everything was new. Nobody was pointing a finger and saying, well, that's not how I understood Christianity. That's not the way that Jesus taught us to do it. That's not how the first church of Corinth embraced this belief. It was all new. As the apostles went to new towns and approached the synagogue and they led people, Gentiles and Jews, to Christ, everything that they did in methodology, everything that they preached about in mission was brand new. That's the huge difference from today. Sometimes our churches are stumbling over each other because within the church itself, we have this conflict going on between those who are raised in one kind of missionology, stumbling over those who are in a brand new world, who are embracing the generation that they're living in. And instead of being quiet about it, or at least stay, standing to the side and seeing the value of it, we oppose it. We want to take it on, head on. That's not the way it was in the first century. Nobody had the right to say, well, we've never done it that way before. 
That wasn't possible. No, everything that we did was important. The other thing that the first century church endured was persecution, was opposition. Whenever they tried a new method or they were doing something to promote the cause of Christ, it cost them. As much as we like to imagine that it's costly today, it really doesn't cost us anything, does it? There's nobody systematically opposing the message of Christ. The only thing that gets in the way is our own stubbornness, our own resistance, our failure to critically examine where we're coming from and our heart attitudes. So, with that in mind, let's look back at our passage here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, last week, Pastor Thomas, or whoever, I think it was Doug here, uh, looked at verse 7, talking about prayer. Uh, at the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We're going to launch a little bit further into this as we read earlier. But we want to understand that Peter, probably the most popular apostle of his day, not probably, he was by far. He was the Billy Graham of his day. We tend to look at the Bible and we say, wow, look at all that the Apostle Paul wrote. Good grief. He really was the dominant apostle of his day. But the truth is, Peter was far more popular. Peter was the one that had the ears of the people. He was the one that was seen and identified with as the guy who walked with Jesus. So Peter was the head of the church. What he said usually went. That doesn't mean he was 100% perfect in everything that he said, in his theology, in his praxis. But if he said it, it had a huge impact on the people. So as he's writing this epistle, and even more so than the second Peter, which is probably a collection of Peter's sermons from those who had heard him preach, in first Peter, we have really him addressing the church. It's an important book. Uh, because it's kind of squeezed in behind Hebrews, most of us miss it when we read through it. But as we look at this book, we should understand that Peter is trying to grab the hearts of the people of that first century church and give them what they needed. Uh, in chapter four, we have really his fourth oratory that has been written down to the church. And it's by some called an eschatological exhortation for ecclesiology big words. Basically, he's just saying this. Things are changing. You need to be ready. I have a mission for you. This is how you should live for Christ. This is hard for us to understand. The point is, he starts us off by saying, the end of all things is at hand. That's why we say eschatology. He believed that Christ was returning at any moment Jesus was going to be there. This should impact us. It's more than just a theological belief or point. It is something that should completely change how we live everyday life if we truly believe that. The end, the end of all things is at hand. That seems a little strange to us. Scott McKnight says in his book that there's much that needs to be done to bring this text into our world because our world has almost no belief in a divine end to history. In fact, even Christians today seem to have lost much of their moral nerve about the end of history climaxing in a judgment that will decide the fate of all people. Such ideas are clearly found in the Bible, but they have sometimes become an outright embarrassment to Christians. 
Does your neighbor want to hear that Jesus is returning? Do the people that you work with want to understand that you live your life in the hope, but also the fear of Christ's return? Think of it as when you were a child, you're out playing. If you know that your parents are not gonna be home, whose home did you go to to play? In my neighborhood, my mom worked every day, 10 hour days, and so my house became the gathering spot for all of my friends. And we would go there and we would have all the kind of fun that you could have. We would jump over roofs, we would throw things, we would blow up models, we would do anything because there was no supervision. We didn't care. But when it got to be about 4.45, we knew that mom got off work at five. What did we do? We kicked it into gear. We cleaned everything up. We tried to remove any trace of evidence of what we had been doing all day long. If a neighbor had seen us doing something and they threatened to tell on us, perhaps that neighbor would disappear as well. You didn't know what we were gonna be doing. But there was a whole gang of us that were just doing things all the time, blowing up frogs. Uh, you know, horrible things. If we really believed Jesus was returning, if it was 4.45 on the eschatological clock, how would your life change? Would you try to remove all traces of living a life that is less than committed to Christ? Would you want, want him to see how you truly live every day? See, Peter is saying the end is at hand. Now, you say, well, Dave, yeah, but that was written 2,000 years ago. So Peter was wrong. Well, theologically, he's right. The end of all things is at hand. There's nothing that's keeping Christ from returning at this moment. It's an imminent doctrine, meaning all things have been fulfilled. He can come back right now. And even if you watch the uh, Left Behind series and you're saying, well, this has to happen and this has to, Christ can return for his church at any time. Trust me. And so he says, if you believe that, therefore, what? Be self-controlled, sober-minded. Two very powerful imperative commands. Self-controlled, not doing everything that you could do. Sober-minded. Thinking through what you're saying, what your heart attitudes are for the sake of your prayers. We have to live in the hope and the dream that Christ is returning. It could happen. Now, if in all sincerity, I could tell you for a fact that Christ is returning tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., that you go to bed tonight if you could sleep, and when you wake up in this morning, everything will change. Jesus will be on the throne, the world governments will have been humbled, and the church will be in the presence of their God. How would that change your heart? How would that change your life? Peter's saying, live that way every day. No, we don't know when Christ is returning. The church has been looking for that for, as I said, 2,000 years, but he is coming. I said this last time I preached, but when we think of the first advent at Christmas time, when Jesus came, no one saw it coming. They had kind of lost hope. God had forgotten. We misinterpreted those promises. Think of any reason that you can, and it was true 
of the heart and mind of the people of God. But when Jesus did get here, and he is teaching, what does he say about his second coming? As in the days of Noah, the flood, people will be, you know, feasting and drinking and getting married. In other words, they're going to be totally immersed in life without any thought to the fact that he is coming back. Think of all the parables he told about the bridegroom returning and the, and the oil lamps not being lit, not having enough fuel. He is coming. The end of all life is at hand. So he tells us three things. As far as us fulfilling the mission of the church, there's three attitudes that we should have. One, love one another, as it says in verse eight. Two, show humble hospitality to one another as it says in verse 9. And lastly, in 10 and 11, exercise your spiritual gifts for the benefit of one another. The first century church, Peter's original audience, like I said, lived in persecution, marginalization. They didn't have any legal rights whatsoever. Their hope had to be the return of Christ. They all, when Peter said that Jesus was going to return, I can guarantee you that they asked the man who was reading this letter out loud at their church services to read it again. Read it again. Say that part again. I want to hear that again. The end of all things, oh, isn't that great? I don't want to spend one more day in this life. It's too hard. I've watched too many people that I know die for the sake of Christ, lose their jobs for the sake of Christ. When you live in that continual lifestyle and reality, the coming of Christ takes on a whole new power. The church around the world, in Africa and Asia, where there's persecution, oh, you've gotta know that these verses are so important to them. The end of all things, you mean there's hope, there's gonna come justice some point. I'm going to be free of these things that so entangle me. We today just try to generate enthusiasm when we hear these words like, well, I've heard them before. And the thing that we worry about the most is that we are so glutted with materialism and with pleasure and so forth that we're going to lose sight of what it is that Christ does for us. And so the end of all things means that I'll finally be brought to a sobering reality. That the things that I pursue for the majority of my time every day will not be what I pursue in the future. But that is not what Christ is saying here. Through Peter, he is saying, the end is at hand. Keep this in mind. Now today, when we live in the midst of difficulties, and there are some difficulties that none of us saw coming, by the way, as far as a pandemic, as far as the cultural unrest that we've experienced, we're learning that we need as a church to rely one upon another. For the first time in generations, we see how the church truly is the body of Christ, something that the rest of the world discovered a long time ago, and how much we need one another. Peter, if he was alive today, would be saying, that's right. You do need one another. Do not fear the events happening in the world, but rather fear the return of Christ, the creator of the universe. The last time that he came, he came as the lamb, the lamb that was slain. Behold the lamb, John says at his baptism. But this time when he comes back, there will not be with meekness, 
but with justice. It will not be with weakness, but with power. It will not be to put forth the needs of his people as it was in the first time. It will be to rescue his people. So how does that change your life? Well, Peter says this. Let's look at these three things. Well, first of all, love one another. How? Well, earnestly, it says. This word in the Greek means that it should be modified. This verb should be modified with intensity. Your love for one another should be something that is like fireworks going off. Either a long, drawn-out action or one without ceasing. Love one another earnestly. And then he says, above all, love one another. This is the preeminent virtue of a Christian life. Being in bodily relationship with each other. And what does he say about this? It covers a multitude of sins. Well, Dave, you don't understand. You hacked me off. I, I've, I've been around you before, and I don't like your sense of humor, your sarcasm. You've done things where you, it seems like you've ignored me, and blah, blah, blah. And we have things against everybody in this room. And Peter says, no. Doesn't count. You see, if we really lived with the right mission in mind, we would love one another. It covers all those sins. When I watch my grandson run around my house in my living room and he tears everything apart, I own is still looking for Christmas ornaments in our home. We have no idea where they're at. Could be destroyed. Are we furious? Are we gonna send a bill to his parents? No. Why? Well, because we love him. We think he's cute. Who cares if we have one less Bethlehem ornament? Two less blue glass bulbs. It's Edmund. Edmund has a right to my house. Edmund can come over and smash anything he wants except for my brand new TV. But he can do anything he wants because we care for him. Well, when we come into the Church of Christ, Peter is saying, love one another earnestly Above all, because it covers a multitude of sins. There's nothing that you and I can do to one another that should cause us to stop loving one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. As you look around this church this morning, what really chafes you about the other people in this church? As you look out in your community, what really angers you about your neighbor? How can they be so stupid, so blind? Peter's using the word agape here for the word love. I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it's an unconditional love. It's really supposed to be a love that doesn't come because of what someone else has done for us. It comes because of what Christ has done for us. The mission of the church begins and it ends with this love. If we can't love one another, then we don't have a mission to the world. If we can't love one another, then we have no right to stand in front of others and say, Christ is returning. The world doesn't want to hear it from a bunch of sniping people at each other. We, there's no doubt. We've had some tremendous challenges at Parkview Church in the last three, four, five years. I, I, I confess, there were times when I would like of nothing better than to turn in my resignation and just say, there's got to be an easier way to make a living. But every time I think those thoughts, I have to submit to Christ 
and say, what do you want from me, Father? Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing? You need to do that too. You need to be the ones on your knees saying, God, examine my heart. Where am I holding on to anger? Where am I causing separation? This kind of love is not about balancing the books. It's not asking the question, what's in it for me? It's saying Jesus would do this. When Renee stands up and says, we need help in the, in the nursery. A lot of times I hear parents in response to those kind of appeals say, well, this Sundays are the only times I get reprieve from my kids. I have to have that availability. Real love would say, hey, I'll do it. Because if I don't do it, someone else is gonna do it. And I don't want them to have to bear all the burden by themselves. I want to love them in that way. When Doug Fern puts out a call for service, do we look for the other person to respond? Or do we love one another enough to make sure that this whole church is represented by all of us as whole disciples? Second thing that Peter says is live in hospitality. Do it without grumbling. Wow, Peter's day, there wasn't anything like a Holiday Inn or an Econo Lodge. As the apostles, evangelists, preachers, and bishops of the church traveled around the known world, they'd stay with fellow believers in their homes. And of course, it became common practice for them to focus on those who had the most material goods. They didn't mean to stick their nose in the air at a poor person, but I mean, seriously, if you had somebody in East Campus who had some material goods and you had to spend the night with somebody, you'd like to spend the night with someone that actually had a guest bedroom, right? A nice soft bed, they had plenty of food. But after a time, it began to wear thin. By the time Peter speaks this exhortation to the people of the church, there were those that were grumbling, saying, ah, oh, it's too much, can't handle it. You know how this happened, right? I mean, somebody who was somewhat wealthy became a believer, we saw this in the book of Acts, and right away they're like, hey, whatever the church needs, I can do. As a pastor, I've seen this so many times in the churches that I pastor. Oh, I wanna, I wanna be there for everyone. You feel free to make use of all of my stuff. I love it. But after time, and after so many times that the church has actually taken them up on that offer, you get the impression that it's too much, right? That person is saying, well, you can hear the, just hear the guy. I don't know if we're gonna have enough for us this year. I mean, wow, how many times do I have to feed people? Didn't somebody else do this for a while? Or you hear the wife saying, oh, I'm so tired of making the beds and cleaning the house and preparation. Can't someone else do this? And, and pretty soon that attitude begins to come in there. And Peter's saying, no, show hospitality. Basically what he's saying is this love that you have for one another, let it extend to your home. Let it extend to those that have need do it over and over and over again. Oh my goodness. I could just hear the first quarterly business meeting of the church at Corinth. And the guy stands up and says, hey, my wife and I, we've put up with people 120 nights this year. It's someone else's turn. And if you don't like it, 
I'm moving down to the first church of Berea. I'm going to go do it on a different place, right? And this time I'm going to be a little bit more circumspect in how I promote my willingness to help out the church of Christ. No, do it unceasingly without complaining. Here's the point of what Peter is saying. Nothing that you own is yours. You gave up the rights to ownership to everything the moment that you became a Christian. You don't own your life because Jesus bought it at a great price. You don't own your home because everything you have is a gift from God. Meet the needs of those around you. Lastly, Peter exhorts them to show love to one another by exercise of their spiritual gifts. As God has given you a gift, serve one another. He gets very specific. He says, hey, if you're going to speak the oracles of God, do it fully. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God, do it 100%. Don't hold back. What are your spiritual gifts today? The spiritual gifts are given to us so that we can bless the church, one another. Yes, there are times when our gifts bless our community, but specifically, if you're not using your gifts, then our church has gaps. Too many times people are saying, well, it'd be nice if we had someone step forward and take this ministry on or do this act of service or whatever it is. And no one does. And there's only one reason for that. Because someone is sitting on their gift. That hurts the church. We need each other. Love one another earnestly, above all. Keep loving one another. Show hospitality. Do it without grumbling, right? Use your gifts. Use it, your gifts to serve one another, as it says. And God's, and I love this line, as good stewards of God's varied grace. What does it mean to be a steward? Well, a steward is someone who manages a household, typically for a wealthy person. If I'm a steward of a home, it's a mansion, they have a lot of resources, but the owner of the house doesn't want to be bothered with all of the day-to-day -day interactions of how that house should function. So I'm the one in charge of cleaning the house, making sure that at least it is clean. I'm the one in charge of the pantry and making sure that it's well stocked and that everyone can eat like they should eat. I'm the one who assigns different bedrooms to visitors and guests. That's a great steward. Peter is saying the church is this mansion. The church is the place where these gifts are acted out. A varied what? A varied grace. It's not gonna always look the same for each of us. Ione and I were talking about this this last week, and I'll close with this. But we were saying, hey, you know, we don't all exercise these gifts in the same way. When we have something that we're excited about, whether that's a Bible study method, whether that's an act of service, whether that's something that we can do for the church, it's so tempting to say to the rest of the church, hey, I have found the best way. Do it the way that I do it. And if you don't, well, you're gonna feel my wrath. That's part of that mission ideal where we begin to get into the culture See, here's what happens is when the mission isn't clear, when we're not doing it the right way, we tend to adapt the cultural ideologies around us. 
we wake up in the morning and we put on a mega hat. We say, I'm a Trump supporter. We wake up in the morning, we put on a t-shirt that says BLM on it. I'm a Black Lives supporter. And somehow the mission of the church gets lost in that. And we sit across aisles from each other with glares penetrating the person next to us. Or we separate into churches that kind of focus on one or the other of those positions. And there's so many other cultural beliefs that get involved in the church and cause division. Peter's saying, love one another. Let that love pour out. Above all, earnestly, hospitality, without grumbling. Use your gifts. If God's given you great gifts to get involved with certain things, great. But they should never overwhelm the mission of the church. The mission of the church can be justice, can be social justice. The mission of the church can be Bible study. What has God shown you to do? It's in varied grace. Some have that gift, some don't have that gift. Some are willing to follow, some can't follow. We make room. We move over. We give up our seat to those who want to hear better, to see better, and we're humble in so doing. It's a humble kind of love. And I love the way this passage closes. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. He's coming back, no doubt. He's coming back with a passion. And in that moment, we're going to understand what it is that Christ wanted of us. Live your life as if he was coming back today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. May you just help us, Lord, to live a life of love. I pray, Lord, that we will sacrifice what we see as the best for a brother and sister in Christ that also has a similar opinion, but they do it in a different way. May your church just be strong. Father, may East Campus work with Central Campus. May Central Campus and East Campus work with Veritas, work with Grace. We are one body in Christ. Father, I pray that we would just give our heart attitudes on your altar as you did for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.